5,000 test worlds and counting, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. Let me be more precise. TESS, the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, has now found more than 5,000 TOIs, or TESS Objects of Interest. Michelle Kunamoto leads the work that has found more of those potential worlds than any other analysis of the TESS data. She'll join us for a delightful conversation in a few minutes. I cannot begin this week's episode without acknowledging the terrible and fast-developing news coming from Ukraine. My colleagues at the Society and I are as deeply troubled as most of you are. Casey Dreyer and I will open the March 4th Space Policy Edition of Planetary Radio with a discussion of how space exploration and development have already been touched by this tragedy. For example, we learned a couple of days ago that ExoMars, the long-awaited Mars rover from the European Space Agency and Russia, is now likely to miss its already delayed launch this year. Of course, nothing we will have to say about space exploration can come close to the horror of the destruction, the loss of life, and the threat to a thriving democracy we are all witnessing. Our hearts are with the Ukrainian people even as we look to the sky. The Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite is operated for NASA by MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. We've talked about tests several times on our show, but this will be our first conversation with Michelle Kunamoto. If her name sounds familiar, it might be because she was named by Forbes magazine in 2017 as one of 30 under 30 in science. Michelle was the youngest of the group by a wide margin. Now she is a TESS postdoctoral scholar at MIT's Kavli Institute for Astrophysics and Space Research. Her deep statistical innovations have led to what she calls the TESS Faint Star Search. It is responsible for more than 1,600 of those TOIs, or TESS Objects of Interest. Michelle and I met online a few days ago. Michelle, welcome to Planetary Radio. Congratulations on these wonderful findings to not just you, but the whole team that you've been working with and everybody else behind TESS. What marvelous success this spacecraft and all of you are, are seeing. Thank you for having me. And I really do feel honored to represent. I'm just one cog in a much larger machine of a lot of amazing researchers and scientists that work around the world to, to help make TESS be as successful as it is today. And isn't that usually how it goes nowadays? When, when I checked a few minutes ago this morning, there were 5,243 items in the TOI or, or test object of interest uh, catalog. And I bet by the time listeners hear this show, there are going to be even more. That really is stunning. I mean, does this surpass uh, or does it meet your expectations? Uh, Tess is definitely doing as well as I would have hoped. In fact, even more. Uh, just in the past year alone, this time last year, we we had half of half as many TOIs, and that's just an incredible increase in the number. And I don't necessarily expect that we'll double that number again by the time of next year. But definitely, you know, a thousand new planets per year is a really healthy discovery rate, and we're finding some incredible stuff. 
As you know, Natalia Guerrero, your your colleague at MIT, was uh, my guest last year, and it was the article that she wrote that connected me to you, and she actually put the two of us together. And I saw that she's a co-author on the December paper that uh, announced this discovery of over of over 5,000 objects. It's uh, it's an interesting team that you have. Yeah, it's a, got a lot of different types of expertise. Uh, so I'm a postdoctoral associate working on the team. Natalia had been working on the team for much longer than me, so I really benefited from benefited from her expertise on TESS and learned a lot from her as well. Stars in the millions, candidates in the thousands and counting, but the number of confirmed exoplanets lags way behind. There's this huge backlog. And I just wonder if you expect that that's going to continue because it is so difficult for these ground-based telescopes to follow up on on the findings. Yeah, that's that's exactly what it is. Uh, a lot of the time, we have a lot of information about these planets that is internal uh, that the follow-up community has been able to take, but somebody just hasn't sat down and written a paper about it. <laughs> uh, so we'll we might even have very high confidence that a given TOI is a confirmed planet, but we still need somebody to decide that that's a planet they're interested in. They'll write a paper, publish it, have it go through peer review, and people will will accept that it, this is a validated planet. So we need not only a lot of follow-up, but somebody who has the initiative to do that. Um, thankfully, as we observe more and more stars and find more and more planets, there will be a plethora of attractive targets to choose from. And as the mission goes on, those planets are going to be getting more and more follow-up, which will make it easier to confirm them as real planets. Anybody who looks at the raw numbers, the number of TOIs, test objects of interest, and the number of confirmed planets, will also see what may look to a lot of people like a, a big number of false positives. Is that a problem, or is that just an expected part of the process? It's absolutely expected. Obviously, we do our best to try to identify those false positives that can mimic a planet's transit in the data, but there's no pipeline that is 100% perfect at being able to find all the planets and get rid of all the false positives. Uh, oftentimes, there are things that we, we just need follow-up observations, like TESS alone is not able to tell us whether something is a planet or a false positive, uh, so those kinds of false positives are, are very expected. As we get more data from TESS and we improve our algorithms to distinguish planets from false positives, I expect that false positive rate will get lower. Here's a question that only just occurred to me. What causes a false positive? I mean, if if it's not a planet, a world transiting in front of that star, is it being caused by some other variability in that star's brightness as we see it, as TESS sees it? Yeah, so one of the most common types of false positives is another star that's actually orbiting the target that we're looking at. So you might think that if a star were to pass in front of our target, uh, it would block a lot, of, a lot more light than a planet, which is very small. But what if that star happened to just graze our target star? So it just covers just the very, very edge of that star. It will block only a small amount of light that could look like it's a small planet blocking that same amount of light. So these are kind of the most positive, uh, the most common types of false positives because those events in our data look really similar to what is caused by a planet. I'm thinking also of some of what I read um, about how TESS is also now has uh, almost by necessity, I guess, has looked at the area that was stared at by Kepler, that pioneering exoplanet discovery spacecraft that 
you know, had a long road to getting out there in space and proving it could uh, make this technique work. You worked with that data as well, that Kepler data originally. We're obviously building on that. And I just wonder if you have thoughts about the pioneering work that was done by Kepler. Well, Kepler undeniably revolutionized exoplanet science. And before Kepler, 85% of all known planets were larger than the size of Neptune. And we believe that those were clearly the most common types of planets out there. And thanks to Kepler, we now believe that 85% of planets are smaller than Neptune. And in fact, the most common types of planets are those between the sizes of Earth and Neptune. And just that complete change in our perspective of the average planet in the Milky Way galaxy caused the rewriting of planet formation and evolution theories. And that was just based off of a search of 200,000 stars. So one of the great things about TESS is because it's looking at such a large number of stars, in fact, by the end of the seven years, including the the upcoming extended mission, uh, that number will be in the tens of millions of stars. Uh, Mm. I'm just expecting that we're going to be once again seeing an incredible revolution in exoplanet science. And I feel really lucky to be part of that. I bet you do. I mean, I feel lucky just to be able to talk to you about this and and witness these discoveries. But what is the outlook for finding, I'll use that term that we use a lot on the show, Earth-like planets uh, that are roughly the size of our own planet and are in that Goldilocks habitable zone? Uh, so the predictions by the, the paper that just came out a few days ago are that in kind of an optimistic habitable zone, so let's just be, try, try to be really optimistic about what is considered the limits to our Goldilocks zone. I'm finding that there should be about 18 planets that TESS will find that are smaller than twice the size of Earth, which I'll consider kind of a terrestrial Earth-like, Earth-like size. For a much more conservative limit, uh, so if we try to make the conditions on this planet much, more, much closer to the Earth, there are going to be about nine planets that TESS is able to find. Uh, currently, TESS has found six planets in the habitable zone, in the optimistic habitable zone, and two planets in the conservative habitable zone. I'm glad you went with the optimistic uh, scenario first, because that's the one I'm in favor of, of course, (laughs) and I don't have to deal directly with the data. Is this an indication of how rare Earth-like planets are based on these two parameters, size and, and habitable zone? Or is it just a limitation still, as sophisticated, as capable as TESS is, of our ability to find worlds like our own? It's definitely the latter. Kepler tried to find an estimate for the frequency of Earth-sized planets in the habitable zones. The expectations were that it would find a lot of such planets if they were common. It didn't find as many as we expected. In fact, depending on how critically you look at the planet candidates, Kepler didn't find any Earth-sized planets in the habitable zones. Hmm. And that's just because these really, really small planets cause such small transit depths because they block so little of their star's light. It would be kind of like if you're imagining the Empire State Building and all of the lights are on and all the window shades are up and you're staring at this Empire State Building from 100 kilometers away and somebody closes the shades of a single window by just a few inches. And that happens once a year. (laughs) It's just, it's it's really incredibly difficult to find Earth-sized planets in year-long orbits around sun-like stars. Now, a benefit of TESS is it's looking at a much wider type of stars. So the habitable zone for cooler and smaller stars is going to be closer in. Because these are such cooler stars, planets have to orbit a lot closer to have kind of a similar temperature as their own Earth. 
those types of stars are among the most common types of stars in our galaxy. And TESS is observing millions of them. But those are also very faint. And that brings us back to the whole, you know, faint stars will have a lot of noisiness in the light curves. So it, it challenges the identification of small planets. So what we're really going to be seeing is as TESS is reobserving a lot of these stars, the yield of these small planets in the habitable zone is going to significantly increase. Um, in fact, from the end of the current extended mission to the end of the next extended mission, the number of planets in the habitable zone is going to roughly double. Wow. And by the way, kudos for yet another great analogy uh, using the Empire State Building. Nicely done. Um, I wonder about your thinking uh, about what these results are telling us. Not so much about the stars where TESS is capable of finding these exoplanets, but the ones where it can't. I mean, the ones where, you know, those planets are not transiting the surface of their star as we see it from our, our limited angle here on Earth or nearby. I have to think that it gives us a lot of encouragement for finding planets eventually around a, a lot of stars, most stars. Yeah, so the, the probability that a planet transits as seen by TESS for something like an Earth-sized planet around a, in a year-long orbit is about 0.5%. So huh. it's incredibly challenging and difficult to be able to catch a transit. And so the fact that we found you know, 5,000 TOIs um, at such low transit probabilities, we can extrapolate. And that means that the number of planets is actually really, really common. Like every star in, in the galaxy that's similar to our sun has multiple planets around them. And even the, the nearest stars to our, our sun you know, must have multiple planets. I think that's actually one of the reasons why this, uh, one of the planets around Proxima Centauri is my favorite planet. Ah. And that's because it's the nearest star to our sun, so just four light years away, and it hosts a small Earth-sized planet in its habitable zone. So if if our nearest star to our sun is able to do that, it just kind of opens you up to the, the fact that they must be out there. A statement of faith, but one uh, based on good data. <laughs> I, I How did you know I was going to ask you if you had favorites? Uh, okay, so there's that one. A great choice. Do you have other worlds that Tess has found uh, that, uh, that really get you excited? I think... Uh, this will be, I'm a bit biased here, but in the faint star search, I did come across a multi-planet system. I'm currently working on a paper that is going to be confirming those planets. And I've got some follow-up. And what's really exciting about the system is it has three planets, uh, all with orbital periods less than 15 days. And two of them are sub-Saturn-sized planets. So these are really massive planets that are in really compact orbits. And it's one of the only type systems that we've seen so far. You know, I won't give the exact name of the system, but there's <laughs> indications that there might be a fourth planet in this system that TESS didn't see, but we can see because because of some extra data we've got. So it's just it's something that I'm really excited about and hoping to finish up that paper soon and be able to present it to the world. I look forward to hearing about that. Uh, thanks for sharing that preview with us and congratulations in advance of uh, of publication. Outreach activity. That's something that is obviously very important to you. You've been doing uh, outreach since you were at least an undergraduate, right? I mean, why is it so important to you? Yeah, the I think general public is my favorite type of audience to talk to because <laughs> I, I really just love sharing my passion for astronomy, especially to people who aren't super familiar with it. 
it really touches on a fundamental question that we've all asked ourselves at some point in our life. Um, you know, are we alone? Is there other life out there? And a lot of people that I talk to are science fiction fans, and they might have gotten inspired to be interested in astronomy because of Star Trek or Star Wars. Uh, for me personally, it was it was Star Trek, the original series. All right. And yeah, and I, I just find that the general public is just a really fun group of people to talk to because people are coming from all types of backgrounds, all types of familiarity with astronomy. And I think the the questions that I get asked from the general public are, it just shows how curious human beings are, right? They're not here because uh, this is uh, the career path they've chosen, but because this is just some, a hobby that they really, really are passionate about and they've always kind of questioned. A second reason why I really like doing that is because I'm able to speak to people who might be inspired to go into astronomy or exoplanets in the future, uh, especially young female scientists. So a lot of the talks that I gave, especially as an undergraduate and a PhD student, were to first-year undergraduates or high school students. And I had amazing feedback from young girls and women who were interested in doing science, and they just spoke to how much it meant for them to see you know, a, a young female undergraduate uh, talking about research and making these discoveries. And it seemed really inspiring to them, so I really felt honored that they would see that in in me and that I could be able to do to be kind of a role model for them. So I really, really value that. It is so nice to hear this and and that you're sharing this passion that you obviously have for your work. Uh, and you talked about those two questions, those questions that our boss Bill Nye uh, says all of this is so much about uh, where do we come from and are we alone? You're still very early in your career. I mean, where do you hope to be uh, to be headed? You've got a good start. Yeah, this is a challenging question. I still don't know yet. Uh, <laughs> obviously, there's a lot of paths forward. I could go through academia, so potentially become a faculty member at a university, uh, or I could perhaps try to see if I could work for NASA or the Canadian Space Agency. Um, I don't know yet which I would prefer to do, and I think this postdoc is a is the time to really be trying to figure that out <laughs> over the next year. Um, I, I think at the moment I'm leaning towards trying for academia. Uh, one of the things that I really liked as a PhD student was being a teaching assistant for some astronomy and physics courses. Being able to work with undergraduates, those were some of my favorite interactions and having a bit more of a mentoring and a teaching side of things. Uh, so that's something that I'd be able to do in academia as a professor while still doing a lot of research that I find is really pa I'm passionate about. That's my tentative answer, but I might change my mind tomorrow. It's a good answer. And um, I, I sure look forward to uh, seeing your continued contributions in both of those areas. Michelle, thank you. And uh, live long and prosper. I uh, am delighted to have had this chance uh, to talk with you today about this great work that you're doing with TESS and, and how it reverberates across the galaxy. Thank you. Thank you for having me again. Michelle Kunamoto is a TESS postdoctoral scholar at MIT's Kavli Institute for Astrophysics and Space Research. She also leads the Faint Star Search, the statistical effort that has discovered more than 1,600 possible worlds in the data delivered by the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite. I'll be right back with Bruce and What's Up here on Planetary Radio. Hi, this is Kate from the Planetary Society. How does space spark your creativity? We want to hear from you. Whether you make cosmic art, 
take photos through a telescope, write haikus about the planets, or invent space games for your family. Really any creative activity that's space-related. We invite you to share it with us. You can add your work to our collection by emailing it to us at connect at planetary.org. That's connect at planetary.org. Thanks! There's so much going on in the world of space science and exploration, and we're here to share it with you. Hi, I'm Sarah, Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society. Want more space? We've got the latest news, pretty planetary pictures, and Planetary Society publications on our social media channels. You can find the Planetary Society on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. I hope you'll like and subscribe so you never miss the next exciting update from the world of planetary science. It's time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. Here is the Chief Scientist of the Planetary Society, Bruce Betts. Welcome back. I know you're looking forward to telling us about the night sky. Oh, I am, Matt. I'm so very excited and excited. I'm excited. Should I tell you things? <laughs> okay, so in the evening sky, we've got uh, no planets to look at, but we've got that whole beautiful Orion thing over there in the south. And if you take Orion's belt, if you go one direction, you get to Sirius, the brightest star in the sky. But if you go the other direction, you will get to the Pleiades, the faint star cluster. And also, kind of above the line, you'll get to Aldebaran of Taurus. In the pre-dawn, however, there is still quite the planet party going on. We've got Venus looking super bright over in the east in the pre-dawn. Mars near it looking dimmer and reddish. And to their lower left, I mean, you need a really good view to the horizon, but Saturn and Mercury are really close. In fact, about the time this comes out, the second and third, they're really very close to each other in the sky. Saturn will get higher, Mercury will get lower, Saturn will get easier to see. Right now, Venus, Mars, they're the easy things. There we go, Matt. How's that for the night sky? I'm thrilled. I mean, I would be if I got up that early enough in the morning, but I don't think I will. But uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm happy for all of you who do. Me too. Let's move on to this week in space history. Speaking of happy, a couple of happy things. 1969, Apollo 9 was launched this week. Apollo 9, the Earth orbiting test of the lunar module. It was successful. Spoiler alert. <laughs> 50 years ago this week, the launch of Pioneer 10, the groundbreaking first spacecraft through the asteroid belt, first spacecraft to Jupiter, and the first spacecraft launch that's one of the five spacecraft leaving the solar system permanently. You know what else is cool? I bet you do. Random space fact! Mercury, it's a speedy little bugger. Mercury's orbital speed is almost nine times faster than Neptune's orbital speed. Fleet of foot? Well named. Indeed. And it takes longer to swim through the solar system. So Neptune, <laughs> well named, or being pulled by a chariot. Still, there's a lot of water resistance. Anyway, that's not important right now. You know what is important right now, Matt? I bet you do. I do. It's the trivia contest. And I asked you, in 2021, what were the top three asteroid surveys in terms of near-Earth asteroid discoveries. How'd we do, Matt? We, we had a, a, a substantially reduced number of entries for this one. 
But here's the answer from our poet laureate first, Dave Fairchild in Kansas. Catalina led the league with 1,400 plus. Panstars was next in line in search of Neod dust. I like how he did that. <laughs> Atlas comes in number three with Neowise at four. Thanks to them, we will not end, as did the dinosaurs. <laughs> nice rhymes, nice rhymes, and correct answers. Uh, Catalina, Panstars, and Atlas being the top three in 2021. Our winner is waiting, waiting patiently. Wait no more, Esan Gias Beglu, whose name I I am absolutely sure I mangle every time I say it. He did provide us with the Catalina Sky Survey, the Panoramic Survey Telescope and Rapid Response System, also known as PANSTARS, and the Asteroid Terrestrial Impact Last Alert System, or ATLAS. So congratulations again, Esan. By the way, he's in Ontario, Canada, where we have a whole bunch of listeners and uh, supporters of the Planetary Society. Esan, we're going to send up your way in Ontario, Goodnight Moonbase by Brett Hofstadt, that terrific uh, children's book, that newest take on uh, Goodnight Moon. And it is very clever with these lovely uh, illustrations by Steve Tanaka that are very much in the style of the original book uh, that inspired all of these, uh, Goodnight Moon. It's available from all the usual places, and um, it's published by Aero Maestro. I recommend it. I, in fact, I'm, I've got your copy, your signed copy, right here in my hand. So these three surveys that find us right now, the majority of NEOs, are all a part of the NASA-funded professional surveys, and they're what require follow-up observations and such from a whole bunch of observatories, including amateurs and uh, including the Shoemaker Neo Grant winners that we talked to recently, a follow-up on the, uh, the initial discoveries to figure out orbits and the like. It's a great uh, species-wide uh, effort to uh, save ourselves from that fate of the dinosaurs. We are ready to wrap this up with a new contest. All right, we're headed to Mars, the largest mountain in the solar system. What was Olympus Mons named before being named that, back when astronomers only knew it as an albedo or brightness feature? Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. That's fascinating. I did not know that it had actually been recognized before they realized it was that hulking extinct volcano. It did, and as we'll probably hear, they, there were suspicions for various reasons that it was a mountain, but uh, not confirmed until spacecraft got there. You've got until the 9th, that'd be March 9th at 8 a.m. Pacific time, and... We're going to start a new series of really terrific prizes for the winners out there. Uh, this first one, in fact, all of them, will come from our friends at Chop Shop, chopshopstore.com, where you can find the Planetary Society store, all of our merchandise, but all of uh, his other great stuff, including this week, this uh, Viking print. It's a 20 by 36 screen print. It is absolutely beautiful. I got to say they do the most wonderful designs. And it shows Viking, I assume Viking 1, descending to the Martian surface as the Viking orbiter passes by overhead. Uh, it uh, might be yours if you are the winner in this latest uh, contest provided to us by the chief scientist, Bruce Betts. And uh, we're done. What? <laughs> I provided something? 
Uh, every time. Do you have to write the prize? <laughs> oh, the trivia question. Yeah, that, that is I. Okay, everybody, go out there, look up in the night sky, and think about your favorite marine mammal. Thank you, and good night. No, 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 no seals, no sea lions. That was the, the, the dolphin that I always thought would be the greatest pet to have in a pool. Would just be so much fun for me, not for him. Uh, him, him, he, the him who's with us is uh, the chief scientist of the Planetary Society, Bruce Betts, who joins us every week here for What's Up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its peace-loving members. Mark Hilverda, Jason Davis, and Ray Pauletta are our associate producers this week. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. Ad Astro.